Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. I want to tell you my secret now. I see dead people. Silent Green is people! I am the father. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up! Damn you all to hell! Hello and welcome to another Slate Spoiler Special Podcast. Today we are spoiling the Hulu original movie Palm Springs, starring Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti. I am Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm joined today by Willa Paskin, Slate's TV critic. Hey, Willa. Hi. And also joining us is Slate's senior editor and the editor of our culture blog, Browbeat, Sam Adams. Hi, Sam. Hello. All right, so Palm Springs. I think I'm going to start, as I usually do, by going around the virtual table and asking you all, if you, just if you would send your friends to watch this movie. It's not a huge sunk cost. It's, it's a 90-minute movie that's freely available on Hulu, if you have Hulu. But I'll start with you, Sam. Would you send your friend to see Palm Springs? <laughs> well, you say send as if people are leaving the house to see it. But, uh... <laughs> Would you make them arduously press a few buttons on their remote seat yes. Yeah, exactly. I would urge them to subscribe to Hulu if they don't already. Yeah, it's totally worth it. This is a movie that I saw at Sundance for the first time in January when it was kind of a big buzzworthy title and ended up selling for, I think, upwards of $17 million, which is a huge and maybe somewhat ill-advised sale. But, it, you know, I saw it there and it's super charming romantic comedy with, uh, I guess, a, a twist or a nifty premise, which we will get to shortly. Watched it again last week and it definitely holds up, reveals more second time through once you know what the plot is going to be. Andy Samberg and Krista Milioti are both very charming, have great chemistry, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, I would. All right. So you're a yes. And what about you, Willa? Yeah, totally. Fun movie. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> this is this is a no-brainer as far as that is concerned. And I'll say for my part that I was just incredibly grateful that this this movie existed last week. I mean, we're just we're in such a dreary time loop of our own, right? I mean, I don't think there's any review of this movie that hasn't mentioned how strangely prescient it is. Obviously, it was made before we all got locked inside, but is about that same kind of tedious uh, eternal day that we're all locked into, and yet it's so untedious. And uh, I really appreciated that it was at the same time. An easy watch and not stupid, right? I mean, it's very light, but it's not without its intellectual demands. And we'll get to to what some of those are. I mean, I think it's the kind of movie that you want to see a second time. I also saw it twice, Sam, and I, I really feel like seeing it a second time seals in the goodness and you start to realize how some things are planted very early on that you might not have noticed the first time. And I want to talk about what some of those are. So um, maybe we should begin by just setting up the premise. Actually, the way I'm going to begin, begin, before we even do that, is mentioning the writer and the director. Because as Sam mentioned, for some reason, maybe because Andy Samberg is the lead in this, and he is also one of the producers on the movie and has always been one of his own writers with his Lonely Island comedy gang. And so it feels like an Andy Samberg movie, but it does have a director, and it's a first-time director. And I think he 
produces a very accomplished uh, debut film. His name is Max Barbacow, and I'm curious to see what Max Barbacow does next. The writer, Andy Sierra, this is his first feature that he's written. And so I think this movie, even though it's about a premise that we've re- revisited in a lot of things since Groundhog Day, has a feeling of freshness and collaboration that comes from maybe these two guys both making their first feature together and kind of an energy around that. So let's set up the premise. Um, as I just mentioned, it is a Groundhog Day movie. If you go into it knowing nothing but that, I think it's kind of ideal. You shouldn't know too much. But since this is a spoiler, let's get into the details of it. When we first join Niles, the main character played by Andy Samberg, he is already in the loop, which is not something that I realized the first time I watched it. I think I thought he was having his first day and that we would then see repetitions of it. But in fact, he is already having a day that he's had some infinite number of times already. Willa, I'll start with you. Do you want to describe that day? Yeah, he wakes up in the morning every day seems to open with his girlfriend who doesn't like him and who he doesn't like saying open your eyes and she's putting lotion on the bed and they perfunctorily fuck and then he goes into the pool he sits in the pool he has some beers in the pool that and a friend of his jumps in and he tosses him a beer and like they have the same conversation and then they end up at this wedding where he is so familiar with all the beats that he essentially like swoops in and gives the wedding toast. The wedding is for Christina Milati's character's sister and Niles, Andy Samberg's character's girlfriend, is in the bridal party. He's not super familiar with the bride and groom, but he gives this toast. So Sarah is supposed to give a toast and she has not prepared for it because she's, you know, she's just sort of like the Rachel getting married sister of this situation. Actually, that becomes more true as the movie goes on. And he swoops in and gives this sort of bizarre but charming toast then one gets the sense that he's sort of like he's like in a video game or something where he's mapped out every level and so he just like decides what he wants to do that night so like in the night the first day that we see he sort of is flirting with sarah but this involves like you know there's parts where he's like dancing on the dance floor and he knows exactly when this drunk guy is gonna fall down so he like swivels a chair underneath him like he's been there a million times basically you know, they fool around and then end up in the desert in the night. They're fooling around and and suddenly in the middle of the desert, someone shoots him with a bow and arrow. And this is like very jarring because it's like you're starting to figure out what's happening as like this 20 minutes of the movie are going on. It's like very light and jaunty. And then he gets shot with a bow and arrow and you're like, that's not like a Groundhog's Day thing. He sort of like runs through the desert to this cave, which is essentially the mystical cave that is the thing that creates the time loop. And he he drags himself in so he can start the day over. And he's like, don't come to Sarah, but sort of perfunctorily because he's like been shot with an arrow and she does. And so then, boom, it starts all over again. The MacGuffin is the cave, right? I mean, the thing, I don't know if MacGuffin is exactly the right term for that narrative device, but the thing that makes the time loop begin is this mystical cave that opens up once every day, once in this ever repeating day, every day. And that if you go into it, you fall into the time loop. Yeah, so he has been stuck in this time loop for some possibly millions of iterations. And Sarah, by following him, kind of gets stuck in it unwillingly. Once she figures out what was going on, is freaked out and then gets like furious with him because he's kind of condemned her inadvertently to the same kind of hell of repetition that he's in. Yeah, and also what's interesting is that like he seems like he's our point of view character, right? Because he's like the protagonist and we're sort of close with him. I mean, that stays true, but she actually is the one who's having like the experience we're having. So basically she starts from scratch trying to do all the things he did, like kill herself many times and 
leave and like drive as far as she can just to, you know, to stay awake forever. Like she goes through all the things we presumably he did, but he's the one who knows now. So we're sort of sitting on his shoulder, like beginning every day kind of with him until sort of halfway through the movie. But she's the one who's like the newbie. She's also the protagonist, you could argue, in the sense that she's the one who wants to change and tries to change, right? I mean, the whole movie becomes about their two different approaches to being stuck in this eternal day. Hers is this very, um, at first, anguished one, right? And then later it becomes this kind of constructive, you know, she applies her full intelligence and will to trying to get out, whereas he's this kind of nihilist who's just resigned himself to enjoying that one day over and over again as much as he can. But which he starts to be able to do once she joins him. He's like dead inside before right. she shows well, his, up. Well, <laughs> his idea of enjoyment changes, right? I mean, before he he is this sort of hedonist who's just decided the most I can do is just sort of, you know, drink and fuck my way through every day and just sort of try to enjoy it in my, in my bleak nihilist manner. And when she comes along, it starts to open up. I feel like he isn't even enjoying it. He's just like, I can't die. So like, right. I do this. Well, that speech, that conversation <laughs> that they have in the car early on... It's a, I mean, it's just a great moment when the kind of philosophical fundaments of the script are laid out, right? Where the different possible ways of approaching this life are laid out and how unsatisfactory his is, but how unable she is at first to kind of create any alternative to it. Well, his feeling is basically, I've tried everything there is to try. I've done everything there is to do. You find out eventually, yes, that he's like fucked everyone there is to fuck. And he's like killed himself in every way there is to kill himself. And none of it makes any difference. So now his goal is to just kind of get through things with as little interaction as possible. I mean, one of the things about this movie that I, I kind of enjoy, but stops me from think, thinking it's fully great is I feel like there's so much resonance in this premise that the movie doesn't really dig into past a certain point, but there is some idea that they are both Niles and Sarah are people who are in some way kind of stuck in their lives. They are just kind of going in circles and this time loop situation makes that literal and then they have to find their way out and kind of reconnect with life in some way, which is sort of that more than anything is kind of the Groundhog Day redux of this more than the premise even, I think. But then we'll, we'll get to the ending later, but it does sort of take, you know, some sort of turn away from that eventually. But that idea of that the, they're just kind of going through life, going through the motions day in, day out, not really trying to improve their lives or do anything significant is what kind of gives the repetition. It makes it more than just kind of a problem they have to solve. Well, one of the interesting things also about their sort of philosophical disagreement and the movie is it's sort of in this conversation with how much their past matters. So like they get to know each other incredibly well. I would say like the most fun of this movie is sort of a segment where she, there's a beginning where she sort of is inducted into the loop. And then there's sort of the beginning of her induction to the loop where she's just basically like trying to get out of it, trying to kill herself furious, like trying to sort of figure out what's going on. And then she sort of gets on board with him of like them just being stuck. And they proceed to have like a montage of good times, which is like very charming. Like they just start to amuse themselves and each other. And they just like do crazy things together and have a blast. I love the black humor of that montage because it includes everything from, you know, having a flash mob dance in a bar to just crashing a plane because you don't know how to fly it since you can just factor death into their, you know, fun day montage with without any repercussions. Totally. And throughout this whole thing, they're sort of like decided in like a fully phony baloney way. Like they're not going to sleep together because they have to spend so much time together. And you're like, this seems very contrived romantic comedy, like tension thing that's happening here. But they um, keep having a conversation about how much they need to know about each other. Like, 
in their past and if, if whether or not this this just like being in the present in this constant interaction is a real like giving themselves knowledge of each other that's all that really matters and they like have a longer version of this conversation when they're sort of camping in the one of the dramatic climaxes of the movie which we could talk about a little where they do sleep together and then everything of course goes to shit. Yes, I can't wait to get to that scene, which, um, which fascinatingly is right in the middle of the movie. I feel like the symmetry of this movie is part of what's fun about it. It's exactly 90 minutes long, and that happens exactly at the 45-minute point, that they sleep together and sort of, you know, just turn a new page in their relationship. You can tell that she's kind of a mess, and the way in which she's a mess, and you tell that more and more, but his whole thing is like, you're just, I think you're imputing a lot of, like, Andy Samberg man-child stuff to like the audience is bringing a lot of that right we're like what's his deal oh probably he's just like like a grown-up who doesn't want to grow up and I think that because that's an Andy Samberg character right like we don't actually ever find anything out about Niles yeah I mean this is a place where I kind of agree with Sam if I was reviewing this movie I feel like I would have almost all just lovable cuddly things to say and send people to see it but I think a place that it could have dug deeper is teaching us a little bit more as we go along and letting them learn a little bit more about their lives before there's that moment also in the you know the climactic scene where they're doing mushrooms in the tent and they end up sleeping together where she asked what his job was and he can't remember that's a great moment. But it would be great later on if, you know, he did get some revelation about that. Or, for example, her family. She mentions that her mother has died and, you know, the, the mom at the wedding is her stepmom. We hear something about her brother needing a blood transfusion or marrow transfusion from her sister, right? At one of the wedding toasts, there's this moment of, like, remember when her sister saved her brother's life? Like, that's kind of a big deal. And that never reappears. I mean, I didn't need, you know, big flashbacks with psychological revelations. But I think it would have deepened their relationship if they had brought a little bit of their past into the story. Maybe that was a deliberate omission, but... I, yeah, I feel like with her, we got enough of it. Like, I got, like, the kind of dysfunctional picture they were painting of her. Not to jump ahead of ourselves, but it basically, at sort of half, a little past this halfway point, um, it becomes clear that she slept with her sister's fiancé the night before the wedding. And part of the reason she's so desperate to get out of the loop is that every morning she keeps waking up in his bed. So she's like, every day she's confronted with what a terrible person she is. So I, did, I think they did a better job of, of being like, this is where she's coming from. His thing is like a little bland. It's nitpicking. It was a very fun movie. Anyway, should we talk about the camp? Yeah, there's a lot to talk about there. I mean, one of the things I think has to be just one of the eternally unsolvable mysteries of this movie, which is why do they see dinosaurs? <laughs> why is there a row of brontosauruses majestically moving in the background at a certain moment? Are they just sharing a mutual drug trip vision? Or is there something about the time loop that makes it involve prehistoric time? Yeah, I mean, the first time they're kind of tripping, but the last shot of the movie is the dinosaurs coming back, which feels like just a little bit of like a screenwriterly, you know, Philip or something, but definitely the last shot of the movie is not a point of view shot. They're not on hallucinogenic drugs at that point. So that would seem to be real somehow. This is like the first time this ever happened. I watched this on my computer, like just my laptop. And in both times, I could not see the dinosaurs. <laughs> like, I mean, I had to, I went back and found the dinosaurs after reading about it. But it's like the first time where I was like, oh, the experience of watching this movie on like such a small screen, literally like, made me miss like a, a significant like I a hundred like I heard them talk about the dinosaurs in the middle one so I knew that it happened but I didn't see them in the last shot until I was like reading spoilers about the movie and I'm not the only person because like I talked to some other people from Slate who were like yeah oh I didn't even notice the dinosaurs at the end 
there's an argument for the theatrical experience right there. You <laughs> will miss dope. a major plot point if you don't see yeah. Palm Springs on a big screen. What is your theory about what the dinosaurs are doing in there, Willa? Well, this is getting way ahead of ourselves, but sort of the readings of the dinosaurs, the LA Times wrote a piece that's sort of about like the ambiguous ending of Palm Springs and the dinosaurs in that context, like it's like, oh, the dinosaurs are still here. I mean, we're jumping ahead of a whole bunch of plot, but basically they get out of the time loop. Sam spoke with a physicist about this, so we'll let him explain how exactly that happened. But like they get out of the time loop, there's this explosion. And the last thing in the movie is them at their hangout spot in a pool, literally saying it's November 10th. Like they moved on to the next day and then the camera pans up and you see these dinosaurs. So like one way it could be like, oh, it's just this sort of symbol of like their, you know, of how love is like a dinosaur. <laughs> and Like it's still here, even though they've gotten out of the time loop. In this piece of the LA Times, it was like, or is it is it saying like everything's still super weird and and it's ambiguous and maybe they didn't. Maybe they're in some other time zone or whatever. And I just think like if this movie was trying to be ambiguous about the ending, like they should have ended on the explosion and the dinosaurs are like kind of weak sauce to me. Like they got out of the time loop and like everything is fine. And that's fine. Like that's a happy ending to their movie. I just think if they really wanted to be ambiguous, the dinosaurs are like. Yeah, I mean, in a movie that is so big on tying things up, you know, that ties up so many things impressively well. It's not that the dinosaurs are an untied loop. It's that they're a piece of string that was that was meant to be untied from the beginning. And I love that because it just keeps me wondering what's going on. But yeah, I'm not sure that I can really justify it, its place in the screenplay. Yeah, as Willa mentioned, I interviewed uh, Clifford Johnson, who was a theoretical physicist, who was the consultant on this movie. And that was a really interesting conversation. One of the things he kind of made clear in the conversation is that, you know, when they approached him, and apparently there's some sort of like hotline you call <laughs> if you want a physicist to like consult on your script. He's done, done this service for like Marvel movies. He helped with the time travel mechanics and the Avengers and game movies and stuff like that. So one of the first things he told them is that like infinite time loops are impossible. My sense is now that there's sort of a thing where they're, once the gravitational waves were kind of, they found evidence of, the, of them a few years ago. So now that it's, we're in the place where time loops are sort of mathematically possible, but physically impossible. Like there's no place in the universe where they could actually happen. So that's sort of the first thing he told them. And then at that point, it's, well, I'm advising with theoretical physics. So you know, when there are like bends in the space time continuum or whatever, they tend to involve like black holes or the amount of force that was unleashed when the universe was created. So like, don't have a time machine because that's stupid. Just have like a natural phenomenon because it's a little closer to the truth. So it's all kind of helping them just have a slightly more interesting breed of nonsense rather than actually working out the mechanics. So if you, people get into like, well, you look at the ending, like, you know, Andy Samberg is still in the loop, but he doesn't know that there's a loop because he's escaped it. So is that like an alternate Andy Samberg? Or, and are we in like a splinter dimension at that at that point? And it's just like, this is not a movie where you're actually meant to be doing that. Like, this is not like a Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, where they're out there like having Kip Thorne on tour with them, like explaining how all the time travel mechanics of the movie work perfectly and stuff like that. It's just... You know, it's a little closer to the truth. It's a little more, uh, you know, scientific or, or interesting or whatever. But, I, I, you know, I think you can – you're kind of wasting your time a little bit. You spent too long thinking about it because I don't think they spent yeah. that long thinking about it. So I think, yeah, the dinosaurs are just there to be, I think – not all of this is explained. Right. Not all of it makes sense. You know, there's always going to be some element that's elusive or, you know, unnatural or illogical or whatever. I mean, one of the weirdest things in this movie is there are two characters in the movie, neither of whom we have any reason to assume speak Arabic, who say shukran. 
at the beginning of the movie. One is the uh, the man who's in the pool with Andy Samberg. The other is kind of a elderly grandmother played by June Squibb from the the movie Nebraska. Why did they say Shukran? Like you know, with the screener, she's like, oh, it's boring to have them say thank you. What about if they just say it in Arabic and said like, there's no reason for that. It doesn't make any sense. You could come up with a theory about how this is like a slightly already a slightly parallel dimension where uh, you know people say it instead of thank you or whatever. But it's just. I feel like it's just to kind of spice things up and make it a little more interesting. Um, so I feel like that's what the dinosaurs are doing as well. But the June Squibb character, it's sort of implied at the end that she's also been stuck in this loop. What happens essentially is like they have sex and it's they're kind of like both like, oh, we're in love with each other, right? They like both wake up with a smile on their face and then it just all goes terribly. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, for one thing, the reveal, did you notice that the reveal that she slept yeah, the comes right the night before happens after that morning, right? Which I think implies a few things. I mean, it implies that the conflict is intensified now that she's starting to fall in love with the Andy Samberg character. But it also invites us, the viewers, deeper into the movie. And that's a very confusing reveal at first. You know, there was a moment that I thought, well, wait, did she think that she was sleeping with Andy Samberg, but she was really just with the groom guy? And I just, it took me a moment to put together that that is part of her loop because we hadn't seen it at any moment before. Yeah. It is also like an interesting, it's like he can't even remember like the days before. And so she's getting further and further away from the person who would do that, like would sleep with her sister's fiance, but she can't actually get further away like in time. I think that was kind of like poignant. Right. I have a question actually about memory and how memory works in this movie. And it's one of the things that I really do think to me was an untied loop that I don't understand, which is why does she not remember? And here we're spoiling something else that we haven't talked about yet. But why does Christian Miliotti's character not remember that she slept with the Andy Samberg character thousands of times as he reveals to her later on? She wasn't in the loop then. Like all the people that are doing it over and over again for him are not actually in the loop. It's his loop. Like they're not, right. they're not there. So the thousands of times that they slept together, it was just him being stuck over and over again, but she right. was still on her thread. So like, I mean, there's like more than one version of her. I mean, there's thousands of versions of her, although the movie doesn't get into that, right? Because maybe those people just disappear at midnight or whenever he goes back in the hole. But so they're all like, chess pieces for him even though they have their own free will sort of so she's just it's not her memory she didn't do it it wasn't her she wasn't in the loop yet and what about the very end i mean i only bring up the very end you know the little pop-up credit sequence because it brings up the same thing as sam mentioned that you know we see the jk simmons character we have to talk about 
at the bar with Andy Samberg and Andy Samberg doesn't seem to know, right? He's pre-loop again. Mm -hmm. So what's being implied by that? Is that Andy's out of the loop? Niles is out of the loop at that point. They've exploded out. But Roy is still in the loop. So he comes back and expects to have a conversation with Niles where they're both still in the loop, right? So they like know each other. And Niles doesn't know who he is anymore because Niles isn't stuck in the loop. It's like, that's why he's like, oh shit, he got out. That's what Roy's revelation is on talking right. to. Although if you logic that out, if Niles has been sort of ejected from the loop before he went into the loop in the first place, which is what the ending kind of implies, because when Roy says hi to him, he doesn't even recognize him. That means that also that his entire relationship with Sarah has been overwritten and erased, uh, which is probably not what the movie wants us to conclude. I know, but I don't even think like, it's just like Roy is still doing the same day. He's stuck. He's stuck. And he's in the rut. And they're, they're Niles and Sarah who weren't there. That version of them is out. It's so not, it's the same logic. It's the same logic yeah. as why Sarah doesn't remember sleeping. Yeah, it's just like, it's not, those people are still on the one time, like, they're on the one timeline. And it's just the people who are stuck who keep encountering them again and again. It's just from the point of view of the person who's stuck. Everyone is like sort of a, all the other people just sort of orient around them for their their stuckness. Right. right. But once you're in the loop, you do retain information. Totally. Which is how she figures out, you know, she devotes herself to educating herself in physics enough to figure out how to get out of the loop. Right, so that's basically what happens is they, so after they sleep together, they end up having this huge fight where she and Roy reappears where she tries to kill, I mean, it just, it gets very bleak, right? Like she sort of, that is the scene with Roy right after where she has the police. Yep. Right, where she like shoots Roy. Anyway, she basically, they, they separate for like, again, thousands and thousands of recurrences, presumably, while she teaches herself quantum physics. And he just sadly won't even go look for her. So there's a part where he's sort of like so bereft because he's so bored and he's alone. And he finally figures out what's really eating at her, which is that she'd slept with her sister's soon to be husband by like smelling her perfume, which has been sort of teased throughout the whole movie. And then there's a cut and you're like, oh, so now he's going to show up at her door like at that like, right, he's going to show up as soon as he wakes up, he's going to run and find her at like seven in the morning. And it just never happens. He's just like passively is like, I guess I'll just wait for her to appear. And like that, I couldn't tell if that was just like, a mechanics of the movie because they like they just needed to let her keep learning or we're supposed to take something about his character where it's like oh you're so passive and ridiculous that like you're been so sad that this girl broke up with you and now you know where she is and you won't even go find her in the morning but isn't he trying to go find her i, I mean do you mean he just could have set his alarm earlier <laughs> no he can't set his her? alarm he can't change when he wakes up but like he doesn't try to go find her he's like oh i figured that out and then he just waits like he doesn't try to go to where her room like he knows where she slept that night at the beginning he tries to find her by going to where her family is and like being like where and she's not we know now she doesn't sleep there that night right she's like but he now has this information about where she is and he never shows up at that hotel room there's literally a smash cut in the movie where i was like oh now he's gonna show up like knock on that door and he didn't he just waited for her to come back to him because he's because it's a weird writing or because he's he's really so passive and scared yeah i guess it does go with the passivity of his character but you're right that is a moment where you could sort it out and come up with an alternate solution if you wanted to hey because we haven't mentioned him yet i feel like we have to talk about roy jk simmons character if only because i just i now really want a spinoff that's just entirely about roy he's such a great character and just reminded me of how funny J.K. Simmons can be. I mean, I guess we're used to seeing him be funny in that kind of Martinet yelling mode that you always see him in. But his character in this has a different quality of kind of sweetness. And, and I absolutely loved him, especially in the scene where they do some kind of drug that it seems at once to dye their noses bright yellow and bright green. Like this really farcical scene of the two of them getting high and bonding together. I loved it. 
Right, which is how Roy ends up in the time loop in the first place. Like, Niles just, they do a shitload of drugs together, and Niles is just kind of totally blitzed, like, wandering his way towards the cave at the end and isn't really aware that he's, you know, dragging Roy with him or, or doesn't, you know, it was too high to care at that point. And so Roy, like Sarah, is extremely unhappy about having been, you know, pulled into this endless circle. So that's why he is initially hunting Andy Samberg down with a bow and arrow. Um, so you get that. Typical kind of J.K. Simmons, hard-ass character. He perpetually refers to him as shitbird. And then we get towards the end of the movie, he disappears for quite a while from the plot. And then eventually, Niles kind of tracks him down in Irvine, which is where he's from. One of the plot points is that Roy kind of only shows up later in the loop because he, you know, lived away, away from the wedding venue and had to make his way out to Palm Springs. So he only shows up in the afternoon. Niles goes and tracks him down. And Roy has basically made peace with his situation. When they're doing drugs in the first place, Roy is talking about, oh, man, I got like, you know, I'm so sick of being married to this woman. And I, you know, got her pregnant and got stuck and got married and we had two kids. And he's basically kind of unhappy with all of that and kind of drowning his sorrows in coke or whatever it is. And then when Niles finally tracks him down, Roy has kind of made peace with it. And he's, you know, out back grilling, you know, watching his kids play in the yard, you know, he's cooking tuna steaks for everybody and whatever. And he's just found peace with this endless repetition, which is what the movie is going to really about. So you get to see this other more soulful side of J.K. Simmons, which is not kind of, you know, the top line on his character actor resume. Like, it's not the thing that you immediately call him for, but he has, you know, done in a few movies before, like uh, the Coen Brothers Lady Killers is one that kind of leaps to mind. You know, it's nice that he gets to actually play like a range in a movie, which is not something that he gets to do very often. He like, yeah. he, I mean, it leads to this very funny, like the mantra of the movie is like, find your Irvine, which like is like supposed to be like Zen Koan. And it's like obviously ridiculous, but works in the movie. It's such a California joke. <laughs> totally. Find your Irvine. And Irvine is like a funny, it's a funny one for it to be like, find your Malibu. Like it's not as funny. It sounds like something someone would say that was horrible. He's sporadically hunting down Niles the whole movie. He, Niles like, he only shows up every couple of days because he has to schlep all the way from Irvine. And Sarah is always like, you have to fight back. And basically... Roy ends up getting pinned by a car and, and we don't see it happening, but he dies in an ER and or an ICU. And Niles has told us many times that dying in an ICU is the worst. Like we never see anyone doing it, but it's just like this implication that they've actually all had this, you know, the pain is real. The memory of it is real. So Roy has had this experience of finally, like he understands what he's put Niles through and he has this sort of like peaceful change of heart where it's like torturing you. I was actually torturing you. I'm I'm not going to do that anymore. But his his Zen is obviously not that Zen because he does show up in that last scene in the movie looking to get out of the loop, right? I guess so. Although we don't know exactly how far he is in the loop by then. That's true. Why does he keep going to the wedding? I mean, I guess Roy could in a way solve his problem by just not going. So Sarah becomes this physics expert and concocts this plan to basically blow up a bomb in this like very short period of time while they're in <laughs> in the cave and it will hopefully bounce them out of the time loop that they're in. They have, you know, the climax in the movie of them debating whether or not to do that. But basically, right before she does this, she leaves Roy a message explaining the plan. And he gets it. And the next day he comes and that's when he sees that it's worked, right? That's the... So it's like he, she's told him what she thinks is the way to get out of the loop. And now he has that information. So like he, he starts hysterically laughing. I mean, he, does, he like really guffaws when he realizes the Niles has gotten out. And you, your sense is that he's going to try to do the same thing. So he may have found his Irvine, but he's like, I think he's going to try to escape as well. 
And even in his loop, he says, like, I'm never going to see my kids grow up. Right. You know, I'm not going to get to totally. grow old with my wife, whatever. So, yeah, he's made his peace with them. But he, now that he has actually come to appreciate what he has, it would be better for that to be allowed to kind of evolve forward in time. My one quibble with this movie is I think this movie is like really fun and enjoyable and it's very satisfying through like 60 minutes. And then I did just find some of like the romantic comedy mechanics, like literally the speeches, not good enough. Like as someone who just watched a lot of romantic comedies and found this one to be very clever and creative, like the the like, you know, the speech that Niles finally gives to Sarah when he's like realized that he loves her, like the when Harry met Sally, like when you've found the person, you know, you want to spend the rest of your life with, you want it to start right now. Like that version of that speech was very pedestrian. And a lot of those beats felt like not like writerly wise, they were not as creative as the rest of the film. So that there's a real like you're going downhill really, really fast. Like, you know exactly what's going to happen. And it does happen. And it doesn't even happen in super interesting way, which is not at all true of the movie to that point, which is doing a lot of things that you know, it's doing but in a really interesting way. Right, you mentioned that kind of dance floor scene from the beginning of the movie. And one of the things I like, especially watching the, the movie a second time is it's sort of a, you know, very tropey, like rom com scene where, you know, the heroine's kind of watching the hero on the dance floor and is a little unsure of him. And then he just seems to be preternaturally in tune with his surroundings. And he magically kind of falls into sync with other people who are dancing and, you know, pulls the chair under the drunk guy who's falling in right at the right moment. And he just and it's just that sort of like uh, magic realism rom-com, like this is the hero, you know, this is the guy you're going to fall in love with thing. Only we later find out it's because he's actually lived through that precise moment some infinite number of times. And so actually does know in advance literally every step everyone's going to take. I'd say that the, the moment that this movie won me over that I really thought, you know, this is not just a pedestrian romantic comedy, but it's it's something special that I'm going to really engage in was the, the physical comedy of that dance scene on the dance floor where he anticipates the movements of the other guests. And I can't remember what all the things are, but, you know, takes a sip of someone's drink, you know, keeps someone else from falling down, leaps over another guy as part of his dance move because it was really good physical comedy. And I just respect that, you know, a movie that primarily is heady and verbal and is about ideas had this this key crucial moment that was about timing, timing and stunts, you know, very simple stunts, but very effective ones nonetheless. So I like the way that the infinite repetition kind of undermines or planes with the the infinite repetition of the rom-com genre and the scenes that we've all seen a gazillion times. But then when you get into the parts where it is actually just, you're supposed to treat this big speech as if it's the first time anyone's ever said something like that to someone in a movie, it naturally feels like a little air has been let out of the tires at that point. I mean, I'm going to stand up for the, the, the <laughs> relative lameness of those speeches. Maybe this is just because I'm extremely attracted to Andy Samberg and I would be happy if he said anything romantic to me. But I think that they're supposed to be kind of lame speeches, right? I mean, she immediately shoots them all down. I think the idea is supposed to be that he is struggling with being a romantic hero and that she is also over it, right? And some of the jokes in those scenes are how she deflates him after he thinks, you know, I'm really bringing it this time. I guess I'm thinking specifically of the speech he gives like at the cave, which is like a very you had me at hello situation. And like, it doesn't have a you had me at hello line. I mean, that's a very high bar, admittedly. But like, it does like it just went on a long time for it to not be such a good speech and for her to shoot it down. I mean, also just the whole even up to that point. So basically, they're separated for this extended period of time. He's totally miserable. He's realized he's in love with her. She's we don't know. But you know, she's probably realized she's in love with him long before that. But she's like trying to figure out how to get out. She shows back up. She finally sees him again. And she's like, I have this plan to get us out. And they end up having this fight about the two 
philosophical poles of the movie, which is like she wants to try together to get on with their lives. It's worth it to her, even if it doesn't work, to try to move forward, like even if they die or explode. And he just wants to stay stuck. And even just in how those convers they're framed, those fight, it's just such not a fair fight because she's going to do it anyway. So I just there's like some of the tension of like, of that whole last piece. It just wasn't as strong as the rest of the movie. It's not like it's, you know, I want a romantic comedy to end happily. I'm happy for all the pieces to go in their place. But it's like, you're just waiting for him to be like, oh, duh. If I don't do this, I'm going to knock at the girl at all. Like, that's yeah, obvious. Yeah, yeah, No, you're right. You're right that in that particular scene in, where the, the fight is, you know, is he going with her or is she going to stay with him? You know that there's zero chance she's going to stay with him. Right. And so there's not really any event that causes him to change his mind. It's just sort of she wears him down by refusing to do anything different. Yeah. Right. And their little twist on that moment is she says, like, okay, you have one more sentence to say to me. And then he does this big, like, run on thing. And he's like, comma, semicolon, dash. <laughs> yeah, and, see, that's and it's funny. just like, that's you have, like, writing. grammar grammar humor is what you're bringing to this. <laughs> like, I feel like not only could Nancy Myers do better than that, like, Ann Fletcher could do better than that. Like, raise the bar. Ampersand made me laugh. I enjoyed Ampersand. Yeah. I have maybe a broader genre question before we get to the ending, ending of the movie, which is how do you guys feel like this stacks up to, I mean, not necessarily stacks up in quality, but how do you feel like it differs kind of conceptually from something like Groundhog Day, which is the kind of foundation of the genre or Russian Doll, a recent version of it, Edge of Tomorrow, Happy Death Day. I don't know. Name your time loop comedy and or drama. What do you think that this brings that's new or how does it rethink things? Uh, Because it does feel fresh to me. And I'm really, really surprised that a time loop romantic comedy could feel fresh right now. I don't know. I mean, (laughs) it's almost like it just like it turns out that maybe that's like actually a great format for a movie even if we've seen it in a like every single thing you just named is so fun and i would watch it right now like edge of tomorrow great russian doll obviously great like groundhogs day would watch like i there is something just very satisfying about it that can't be the answer right but like i guess the the difference with those movies you mentioned dan and i have, i don't know this is extremely obvious and i don't know why it took me this long to think of it but it, because those are all movies about one person stuck in a loop, right? They're about, I'm stuck in this thing. How am I going to get out? And they're not about like two or three people. Well, Russian, well, Russian Doll, doll is it has Russian it. Doll, eventually, yeah. No, Russian Doll get, does get into that. Yeah, but it just, something about the kind of mundanity of like a couple being stuck in it and kind of just getting sick of each other. I feel like that's a nice twist on it. I mean, I mean it is me, like the this... first rom-com to use that. Like it's a good twist on a right. rom-com, like more than... It's a twist on that format, you know? It's true. I mean, yeah. Russian Doll dangles the idea that it's going to be, you know, about two people hooking up and then very quickly discards that idea, right? And this this picks it up and runs with it. I mean, for me, what it's really about is, I mean, you know, the time travel stuff is like fun and it makes it interesting, but really like what the pleasure of watching this movie for me is just kind of watching these actors spark off each other. Andy Samberg and particularly Kristen Milioti, I think is just like great in this. I mean, you know, people are having like kind of these long discussions about like the time travel mechanics of it. And I kind of just want to talk about like her eyeshadow in this. And she just has this really like awesome, um, kind of like sullen, like, you know, fuck you attitude. There's this great moment when you mentioned they did this kind of flash mob dance in a a biker bar. And there's this moment where like Andy Samberg kind of picks her up and they both extend their middle fingers and then like spin around in a circle. And like that energy that she brings to it, I just find like really, it may just be my type or whatever, but I just find that really like, like engaging. And I really, (laughs) we're just crushing out on the leads basically, right? We're just crushing. Yeah. I mean, that's what else are you supposed to do? That's what they're there for. So it works. It is funny that they do like skip the scene where she puts on so much eyeliner every morning, which she must do. Like, um, (laughs) and, and also like, it is funny about Christina Milati, who's been in so many things and is basically excellent in all of them, but has never like, 
like, do you don't, does it feel like you're like, she should just maybe be famous now, but it's like never quite really happened. And you're like, oh, is this going to be the thing that it happens for? But I'm not sure that it is. She's just like very good, but always like slightly. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I wonder if she's going like, to ever break I mean, out. She has like a little more edge in this, which I think helps. Like she's been so kind of nice. Like yeah. she sort of famously was the mother on how, you know, yeah. how I met your mother. So she's had these kind of like very nice, but sort of like not especially like distinctive roles. And I feel like there is like an edge to Sarah that might, I mean, the release circumstances of this movie are perhaps not ideal for a big breakout role, unfortunately. But it is so weird because maybe more, like there's no way more people haven't seen this movie now than what if it came out in a theater. Like that's what's sort of weird about this whole thing is like, even if like, I know this is Hulu, but even if Netflix is like cooking the numbers on their movie releases, it's still like so many millions of people. I don't think it's, it is just like, it's just, we don't know how to pay attention to it in the right way. I mean, I, th- I feel like, I don't know what the, the final take is going to be, but th- the filmmakers must be feeling like they lucked out, you know, because they're premiering their movie in a field in a moment when there's really not that much new opening. Pretty soon there's going to be even less, you know, and we, people seem like they're jumping on it. I mean, everybody was talking about this movie when it premiered last week. Can I compare this movie to a not at all a Groundhog's Day type of movie? Please. There's this movie Plus One that is also on Hulu that stars Maya Erskine and the male actor's name I'm blanking on because he's not nearly as good as her. But it is also about a not real couple that goes to weddings over and over again. So it's not like strictly a Groundhog's Day, but it has like a repetitive element that is also like the best rom-com I've seen in a year. Like those two movies are both on Hulu and were not released in theaters. And like, I just wanted Palm Springs to have like to be almost as good as Plus One. And it is almost like it's probably tighter, but I don't know if it's she, it's like it's not quite as good because Maya is so good in that movie. But they sort of reminded me of each other. They're like a conversation about two like people who obviously should be together figuring out in the context of a wedding over and over again. Right. I mean, that's another genre in and of itself. I mean, setting aside the time loop, there's the wedding romantic comedy, right? Which is always about exactly that. Some sort of side participants at a wedding that happen to be trapped anyway. I mean, whether you're in a time loop or not, a wedding has that quality of, look, we're here, you know, we're out of time in this weird place and anything could happen. Right. And again, they're like the repetition of the genre is kind of a theme because Jim Squibb has his line at the beginning of To Andy Sam America about like, oh, you wouldn't believe how many weddings I've been to. And he's just like, oh, like, let me tell you. And maybe they're all that wedding. That's what we find out at the end. <laughs> Do you yeah. think it's suggested that June Squibb is in the loop too? Yes, totally. When she said the last thing she says to him, what does she say? You don't, am I making this up? I don't remember what she said. She says something to him that's so suggestive that she's like been there, done that. I see. I, to me, I thought that was, I mean, maybe this is just me attributing more profundity to the movie than is really there, but that, you know, that being an old person was comparable to being in the loop, you know, that she was talking from a place of wisdom of, you know, just having lived a human life and that there was an analogy between that and this, you know, strange, unnatural life. That I'm sure that that meaning is there, too. But I think like the fun of it is that it's both, you know. So Kristen Milioti's character figures out via self-education about physics in a diner with a big pile of books and by, I guess, Zooming with the same physicist that that Sam talked to, who does a cameo, she figures out how to escape the loop. She sends a goat through the loop. We forgot to mention that there's this um, this kind of hanger on. He's not. He has nothing to do with the wedding, but there's just a local dude named Spuds that they they know who owns a goat. And this goat is the very first thing you see on screen, actually, um, in in the very first shot of the movie. The goat gets sent through the loop or through the cave rather, and it appears to work because the goat never returns. I sort of wish that we had learned whatever happened to the goat, but we never see the goat again, do we? I don't think so. I don't believe so. The goat is just out enjoying life somewhere outside of the time loop. They set up all this tension around. So she 
she's educated herself. She has this whole plan to blow them up, essentially, and and sort of bursting them out of the box of energy that they've <laughs> been stuck in. That's sort of like the gloss of the, what she's trying to do. And obviously, the stakes are that they might die because they might literally blow themselves up or they might get blown into who knows where, right? They're stuck in this day. Maybe they'll get blown into the future. Maybe they'll get blown into the past. Maybe they'll get blown into some other day and they don't know sort of what's going to happen, but they're going to take this leap together. Niall shows up and agrees to take this leap with her and then they go into the cave and smooch and blow themselves up. In this. And I really thought the movie was going to end then because... I don't know. It could have ended then, right? We just wouldn't know. But it definitely that would be end so then. dark. Did you want the movie to end that we no, don't know I don't whether, think, whether I don't, they're dead I under a pile of rocks? I, mean, I didn't think it was dark. It was like we don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> like who could say? I'm not. Sure. I mean, that's to me what what I find sort of bizarre about the dinosaur move. It's like if you really want to introduce ambiguity, like there's a lot of ambiguity you could have introduced by not like giving them this perfect happy ending. Which I, I'm not saying I'm mad about it. But anyway, so they explode themselves, and then you see them the next day, like hanging out in the pool. They're like together and he's like we got to go pick up my dog i guess and it turns out he's had a dog from like his trip to this wedding <laughs> and then the family who lives in the house that they're in the swimming pool shows up and they're like ha 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 time i guess they came back today and like then there's some dinosaurs but you know time has moved on and they're like they're gonna they're gonna try to just be a regular couple making it in the world yeah i wondered what it meant that they went to that pool right away i mean to me it almost seemed like the first thing you would want to do if you got up the next day and and you were not in the time loop would be to get the hell out of there. I don't know. I guess I don't, I don't know how they got as far as it being broad daylight and then being in the neighbor's swimming pool without having figured out that they were out of the loop because they seem to figure it out when the family returns. No, I think when they first go in the pool, he's like, I come here and hang out. The family's not here. I don't know when they come back. So like the joke is like, I guess they come back November 10th. I don't think that they didn't think they were out. I think they knew they were out of the loop. They just are making a joke about the family. They didn't know the family was right. coming back. Yeah, right. I mean, now that you mention it, Willa, maybe it would have been a satisfying ending if she had just said, I love you, which is the last thing she says before they go into the loop, right? The idea being that, you know, they've now both kind of committed to a future together, if they have a future at all. Maybe there would have been a way of filming the end that wasn't completely dark and nihilistic. No, they could have done that and then just done the Roy shot. Right. Where I like, would Andy's not there out. anymore. <laughs> Ni Niles isn't there anymore, but we don't know where he is. Yeah, maybe that would have been a better ending. I mean, I will say that as much as I was really down with this movie, and like I said, just grateful that a, a simple 90-minute fun romantic movie exists in this moment in time, the ending was a little bit deflating. The ending had a tiny bit of a is-that-all-there-is kind of quality, and I'm not sure that the dinosaurs... The dinosaurs, I think, are beautiful in the in the mushroom trip moment, but I'm not sure what they add to the end. Did you did you feel good with the end, Sam? Uh, I, I mean, I feel okay with it. I, I feel like at that point my expectations of it had kind of been lowered once it was clear that it was only kind of going to do so much with the time travel loop and all the various implications of that. So yeah, it feels like a little bit of a punt, but it also is, I feel like it's in keeping with the movie in the sense that like, right, the movie's called Palm Springs. Part of the nature of it is that, okay, you know, technically you can get as far as you can get in a day. So for them to kind of be somewhere else at the ending, I feel like would just sort of fracture the feeling of it. And I kind of like the idea that even though they've repeated like, you know, however many millions or billions of times in this thing, they're still kind of acting like they have all the time in the world. And the like the best thing they can do with their time now is just kind of like lie around with each other. They're not super agenda driven. And like it even takes a moment for him to remember that he has a dog and stuff. But I guess that's also like 
the memory of his former life coming back, having forgotten even what his job was and stuff like that. He's just kind of coming out of the airlock and back into the real world. So I think it, you know, works as kind of a nice little grace note. This is the sort of movie that I enjoy a good deal and would like to leave just there and not try to make too much of it. Because <laughs> I think if you try to make too much of it, it starts to kind of fall apart. So it's just, you know, it is sort of perfect for these times, both in the sense of, you know, it being about repetition and trying to get up, but also because it's just like fine and enjoyable and you don't have to think about it too much and you can just enjoy like two attractive people being attractive together. And that's it. That's all you need. That made me want to say two things. One is which is like, it's also... Like, they're perfect for each other in the sense of, like, now they've resolved this thing about them being stuck in this loop, which they had different approaches to, and all they want to do is, like, hang out in a pool together. Like, you know, they are kind of both, like, slackers who are, like, chill. Right. Out. Like, yeah. That's, yeah, like, yeah. I mean, if like that, sequel, that's what it's putting they're... across. They're like, oh, they're not that different. Like, she just, right. she's trouble. She just wanted to get out of this loop situation. Now she doesn't care. They can drink beer in a pool all day. Yeah, if there's a sequel to this movie, it doesn't involve them doing great things and, you know, conquering the world and having incredibly ambitious plans. I see them doing a lot of floating on pizza-shaped yeah. pool floats and drinking beer. And the other thing is someone pointed this out on Twitter. It doesn't really feel like it's taking place in Palm Springs in any like super meaningful way. <laughs> um Why I've never been to Palm Springs, so I have no It just like it's mostly just I mean I guess it could. It's like it's like Josh it's like any of those places, but it is like you know, it could be called any number of things. Like Palm Springs to me is like also just sort of about like the art deco, like, like there's just like a little more people around. Like this is like Joshua Tree or something. I mean, this is very fine. Like, I just don't, I don't know, like the Palm Springs of it. It's fine. Like it's a good title for a movie, but I don't, I don't know. Yeah, the title is, is fairly generic. As long as we're talking about places, although it's a weird place to end our conversation. I like the fact that she lives in Austin, and then when she tries to go home, she drives from Palm Springs to Texas, just because, well, partly because I'm Texan, but also I just like when a romantic comedy has something non-coastal in it, <laughs> you know, it doesn't make it seem as if every single character has to live on one yeah. of the two coasts. All right, well, I will conclude this by saying that I'm interested now in Max Barbacow, this director, and I hope he manages to make another movie that hits as just right, you know, sort of Goldilocks, just right, not perfect, but just good enough as Palm Springs. And thank you guys very much for coming into Spoiler Fun with me. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Our producer today was Rosemary Belson. As always, you can write us at spoilers at slate.com if you have some feedback on this episode or ideas for other movies or TV shows or podcasts that we should talk about on the spoiler special. For Sam Adams and Willa Paskin, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks for listening, and we'll speak to you again soon. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.